0: On average, over 5,000 students at American universities are awarded PhDs in the humanities each year. Where is all this
1: talent headed? What are these scholars doing?
0: Hello and welcome. You're listening to Careers in the Public Humanities, a podcast that explores the range of careers beyond academia. Each episode, we'll interview a person who's put their degree to use in innovative ways within cultural institutions, in digital and media production, in state or federal agencies, and other literary and cultural publics, in hopes of inspiring other humanities scholars to broaden the view of their career possibilities.
1: This podcast is produced by English PhD students and alumni from the University of Rhode Island and has been made possible by Humanities at Large, a URI initiative funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities Next Generation PhD Grant Program. Welcome back! I'm Katherine Winters, and today we are once again in the Sand Room of the Harrington School of Communication of Media to speak with Careers in the Public Humanities team for a roundtable discussion about public humanities and graduate education in the humanities.
2: Hi, I'm Rachel Basio. I'm an assistant professor of English at LaGuardia Community College in the City University of New York, and I'm delighted to be back in the sound room in Ranger Hall at the University of Rhode Island. Michelle Meek and I began this podcast two years ago as PhD students in English. We were thinking then about meaningful work for PhDs beyond the tenure track and how university doctoral programs might be restructured to prepare graduate students for careers outside the academy. Now we're back, both in tenure track positions, so this opens up new perspectives.
3: Hi. Hi, I'm Michelle Meek. And as Rachel just said, we started this podcast together when we were PhD students at the University of Rhode Island. I am currently an assistant professor in communication studies at Bridgewater State University in Massachusetts. But I also am a writer, filmmaker and entrepreneur. And I recently gave a TEDx talk, Why We're Confused About Consent Rewriting our stories of seduction, which you can see on YouTube. So,
0: I'm Ryan Angley. I've been on this podcast before. You've heard my voice, it was probably in the introduction. I will be leaving Rhode Island for a tenure track job uh, in the media studies department of Pomona College in Southern California. And I just got this job in d- December, I think. Um, so, This is, it's all very new. I I have very little insight about what it's going to be like because I'm not there. I have new faculty orientation next week, actually, on Monday from when we're recording right now. But I also do uh, podcasts um, on my own. So like Michelle, I have a a creative personal endeavor that is attached to my uh, scholarly work. So I think that still fits within the original vision of this podcast, which was to look at things that was uh, work beyond uh, strict uh, tenure track stuff.
4: Uh, I am Michael Landreth, and I am still in the process of earning my Ph.D. here. I'm a second-year Ph.D. student at the University of Rhode Island. And I am going to be coming on and helping out with the podcast as uh, Ryan moves on. And as we know that Michelle and Rachel have also moved on. So uh, I'm hoping to just sort of step in and and pick up some of that slack and uh, keep this thing going.
1: Great. To start off our discussion, I just want to think about before Ryan and I were even really formally involved in this and just played voices for the intro two years out from the creation of this podcast. What does the public humanities mean?
0: One thing that I've liked, I'll just this is about the podcast in general, is we've asked this question to pretty much everybody on here, and most of the people really don't like the term. Uh I find that fascinating. And but for like productive reasons, they don't like it. And I think I think it was who was it that I was it Elizabeth. Elizabeth Francis? Francis, yeah, who said and I think that she had had a really nice gloss on this, which is that it should almost like the term should almost be treated as a, a, as an oxymoron, because the work in the humanities should already, always, already be public, and I think that that's a pretty good place mm-hmm. to start. And that doing this podcast has, and, and kind of growing into understand that idea, has affected. My scholarship and the way that I write and the way that I want to try to make myself understood is that like like I, there are, you know, it's specialist uh, languages and discourses and things that I'm interested in and in psychoanalytic theory and television studies, media studies, media theory, whatever. But I want that to be accessible to people who don't have an advanced degree in it. And I think that that's something that this podcast has uh, kind of helped me to come to realize. And, and I think it starts with the with that phrase, public humanities, and the idea that the humanities should all already be in the public. So I'm thinking two things, sure. right? So like, for example, the
2: work that I'm thinking about, my, the, the interview that I did with Dr. James Golden mm-hmm. at the Mark Twain and Museum, and mm-hmm. he's a scholar, you know, he's an historian by training mm-hmm. and and a PhD. And, you know, but the work that he's doing is public facing in a different kind of way, yeah, right? Because he's sure. speaking to a general audience. Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the you know, maybe the problems that a a term like public humanities can actually gloss over and make difficult is that when you have a tenure track position and you have requirements for, you know, publication, you know, in in journals that are going to sort of count, right, Mm -hmm. like toward your promotion and reappointment, you know, you you that that work has to speak to a really specialized disciplinary audience if sure. it's going to be published in academic journals mm-hmm. and so i guess there's a couple of things right like we can talk about like how you know if if your ambition is to do work that speaks to wider audiences mm-hmm. how does that work get recognized as as academic work I think that's these are real questions especially as people you know are juggling so much right they're juggling teaching and service Mm -hmm. and family responsibilities like we you know and then you have these scholarly you know responsibilities that you have to publish like it becomes like it's a nice thing to say Mm -hmm. I want my work to matter for Mm -hmm. many many for lots of publics but when you're when that's not gonna count yeah
1: right I think for me, part of it is trying to understand why academia would want to keep the public out. And that's why mm-hmm. I think I struggle with it a little bit. I appreciate the way you put it of they, these people haven't read all the texts that I've read, but it's also how often do you even get to speak to another scholar who's actually read all the texts that you've read? And so that next step to translating it to people who haven't read any of those texts or have not read those texts critically just seems like it shouldn't be as big of a thing as it ends up being. But a lot of it's that specialist language that we always use or these ways that we've learned to talk about it that are extremely legible for a small group of people, but only those people, which in some ways does feel like it it is setting up an ivory tower to tell others that they can't access this information. And I think that's part of what public humanities, like the term, is part of the reason that I do agree with Elizabeth and some other people mm-hmm. that we've talked to about, well, maybe it should just be the humanities because part of me feels that maybe we need to learn to to take on more of that practitioner view and more frequently get credit, academic credit for work that is legible beyond our department.
0: Yeah, no, I I, mean, I agree with this because the I mean the, the point is that and I mean I think this is a point a lot of people have said in this podcast is that this isn't a private language. I, I think that like th- there there's a difference between yes, there are there are specialist publications and that there you know there are scholars, whatever, but like the the work that we do is not private. Because when we have when it is private, it seems like we do nothing. It seems like we have no impact, and the people who have impact—and this is not a slam on STEM, but like actual—but like technology and things come out of that mm-hmm. that the that people can use. And it seems like that's the quote useful part of the university. And then we have other people who are, you know, speaking only to each other forever mm-hmm. about very specific and particular things that don't matter to other other folks. And I think that even if the term is is a problem i think that i actually think that's good if if the if the point is we need this term as like rocket boosters on a rocket to like to push to move from public humanities as in like humanities facing more toward publics like uh, even specialist journals like endeavoring to appeal to even like a like a wider audience and just an adjacent one not to like people who would buy entertainment weekly you know but it could like there, there, there is a, there is a wider public that would be interested in those ideas, and that's really what I think it is that we do. Is I think we do ideas, and that, and that, to me, has always been the most exciting part about this.
3: I, I agree, but the problem with us talking just to each other is that we're. How do we make? affect, how do we affect change in the world at large? And I I think that most of us went into academia because we cared about ideas and we cared about sharing them. And and I think that one of the problems with just, you know, one of the things with academic publishing, for instance, I mean, in some cases, these books take an enormous amount of work and get read by very Mm -hmm. few people. Mm -hmm. And I can't help but wonder, what is the point? And it, it just seems that that's a lot of work, in my estimation, a lot of effort and mm-hmm. thought and time that really goes unrecognized. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of a scam that a lot of academics have kind of bought into. Mm-hmm. And I know that many of us are sort of trapped in a system where you need that for tenure, so you don't question it. but. I mean, there should be some pushing back on that as the system. I mean, I I feel very fortunate to be somewhere where, you know, if I do something that is for a mainstream audience, it
2: counts. Because that is something that's going to have value in the world. I'm interested in what Ryan was saying about the way he was framing public by bringing up the word private which is one way to think about yeah. it right the opposite of private um right but I'm also like thinking about what you just said as the reason I think you said many of us or come into the academy maybe you said about like being interested in ideas and wanting to affect change wasn't there something like that
4: mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. I just want to
2: yeah. I'm curious about that right I'm curious if that's the reason most people enter let's say PhD programs in English so and so I just want to pivot for a second to what Ryan was saying, and like this notion of like the importance of not being in our like private ivory tower. I think we all seem to have an agreement about that, particularly at this moment, right, where there's this all this anti-intellectualism mm-hmm. and there's like, you know, lots of we see this very much around science, but it's, it's just true about intellectualism in general. It seems that there is... And and kind of even elevated discourse that there's like a role for uh, academics and intellectuals to play in the public sphere that kind of stands up for a certain kind of knowledge and, and, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and knowledge communication. But I also think that people enter Ph.D. programs because they're interested in intellectual rigor and they're actually interested in like the boundaries of what we can imagine. And that is Is maybe like really hard to make public, Mm -hmm. and so then I wonder what does public mean in that context? And I and so in that context, maybe it means thinking about the public impacts of like that the kind of knowledge that is born of that sort of rigor. I mean, I don't want to. I don't think we should pretend that all of the work we do like is accessible to. I, I mean. I'm going to be the elitist in the room maybe but like do we want to say that that what we do in the academy is essentially and should be open to an appealing and impactful like how wide are we drawing these publics there's two things that i'm thinking
1: of with what you're saying um one is so i work on the the book where are we with the print book and where will it go and so my work is like always inherently really accessible to people once i explain it to them like they all look at me very confused when I say interdiegetic interaction in multimodal narrative. But when I say like reading characters in books with pictures, they're like, oh, I got you. <laughs> um, but I, I spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to talk about that with people because I have always felt that it's really important. And it, and it is a dialogue people can engage with. I like to just ask strangers sometimes, like, what do you think a book is? Um, and I don't agree with any of their definitions, but it is like a conversation I can engage with. So I think it also has to do with well, are they gonna give you a brilliant new idea, or are they gonna engage in the way that you might engage with another scholar on the topic? No, but like you can engage with them at some level, I think. Sure.
0: When I read an academic book, there's basically, I mean, and this this is reductive, but like uh, there, there are two different kinds. One uh, one kind I think is, is like a tip of the tongue book, mm-hmm. where I haven't read anything necessarily that I haven't read before, but it's put in a way that I I hadn't thought of, and that is really clarifying for me about something. And then the second one is the the new idea, which it is, it is, pu- it pushes me, and it is, it is completely new stuff. It like it pushes the field, or it's just something I haven't seen before. One of those models, I think the tip of the tongue model, I think that could that's that's a portion of our work that could be very publicly accessible. The other one, I think, and I do like uh, like Rachel said, I do think there's value in that, in the the new idea, in the the specialist thing before it can be proliferated in the tip of the tongue, I think it does need to be the... So I I think... Anyway, I do think there's that kind of middle space there.
1: To speak to that, though, I was talking recently about how to frame my dissertation and one of my committee members was like, well, it could be like a detective novel. And they were like, you're dropping crumbs till you finally get to the full culmination of your idea. And to some extent, I wonder if maybe that's a, a different way to talk about that pushing the boundaries of knowledge. Because most people who start it don't just have that eureka moment in the bathtub. Most people who are pushing the boundaries of knowledge, Mm -hmm. are in some way following the crumbs of things they've picked up, whether those are questions that nobody else has seemed to grapple with or whether that's ideas that other people have had that you then put together. And I think it's also a matter of, you know, I would never have thought to myself like, oh, a dissertation is like a detective novel. But it was just like reframing it that way could be another way of thinking about the work that we're doing and how do you draw someone through it.
3: I think that you know I think that it's true that there's definitely conversations that can be had on a you know in a di- within a discipline or in an di- interdisciplinary kind of way among academics um, and I think that you know when you read someone like Judith Butler for instance I think that it can be very difficult to read her texts as just a lay person who has isn't prepared to kind of get through a text like that but that said her texts also have a great impact on the world. So I guess and gender that's trouble was a kind bestseller.
0: of like we, for, we right, forget
3: that. Right. So I mean people people will uh, when there's something that's making some significant shift, I think people will gravitate towards it. I guess the the I think Rachel's point though about not everyone goes in it to effect change is probably true, although I have to say that makes me a little sad just because I think that if we're not in the humanities to affect change, then what are we doing? Well, Michelle, because I...
2: I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. It's hard to do. Well, you're just making me think about as we're all talking, I'm thinking we're acting like the, pro- the, the, the troublesome part of the phrase public humanities is public when just like right. also is the notion yeah, of like yeah. why, why, like what? Outside of the academy, what 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 is the humanities? I mean, we could break it yeah. down into like what well, we know as a discipline. It, it means philosophy. It means English. It sure. means you know. But right. like that's not interesting, right? It seems to me, just how compelling it is that the the idea of the human is not settled, right? Mm-hmm. And like the the how much, just how I mean, what what can be more of a universal? We talk about accessibility, sure. but more of like a of, of universal interest than and importance than sort of what is the human? Uh, right. And then and, and just kind of it, the more you know, the more we pull in a, a variety of human experience and trying to like grapple with that question, um, and and recognizing that the ideas the ideas of self and human and, and being human within a humanity change over time. How we all think about that, especially now as we're like maybe facing you know, kind of existential, all these existential terrors, mm-hmm. as well as you know, a move a move into AI and and like a you know the, the just the idea of a digital humanities, right? Like we're all really seeped into this digital world in many ways that we're just novices at thinking about and how this is changing who we are. So. um back to my et cetera,
3: et cetera. But like, you know, I think it's a, I think the humanities is the problematic. Mm. I think the humanities is definitely the problematic (laughs) term, (laughs) unfortunately. And I think it's because that it's almost like an oxymoron. The humanities are not public. So I think that the the problem with the term humanities is that you know at, the society at large doesn't seem to believe the, and not not everyone but it, there's a widespread movement to kind of articulate that the humanities are not useful in society, yeah. and so in that sense it feels more important than ever to for all of us to articulate how our work is relevant mm-hmm. in the public arena because if we continue doing our little thing and, and being, and I'm not saying anyone here is, but I'm saying just, you know, if we, if we, Put ourselves in that ivory tower and we just write to each other, Mm -hmm. we are never going to be able to make the kind of change that shows how valuable the humanities are within the society.
2: And it might not just be audience, Michelle, like it is audience, like we have Mm -hmm. to, like the writing to, but it's also the writing about, right? So we all have those moments when, you know, we're starting out and we have ideas and we get that, like, professor that says, like, the so what question, like, that terrible question. You're like, wait, <laughs> there's supposed to be a reason? There's supposed to be, oh And, you know, a lot of times the answer to the so what question is disciplinary, right? Mm-hmm. That you can yeah. argue that this is important because, you know, it's moving the discipline in a certain direction. But I agree with you. There is an urgency, I think, to have that so what question. And maybe this is another way to cycle back to public, but to have that so what question be about maybe perhaps bigger i mean there the fact that you are absolutely right that the humanities is devalued is is there's many reasons for that but one is strategic right because if we actually made what the humanities is about if we if we raise the question of what it is to be human like this is like that's a really disruptive question and and it is, there's, there's reasons to, be, to really need to be asking that right now as, and not just kind of go blindly in the way we're being pushed, you know, by technology and different kinds of geopolitics. And so maybe that's another way of thinking about the work we do if we identify at all as public humanities scholars Mm -hmm. right is to not just be thinking about is this like to be thinking is this accessible to wider publics but also is the so what question of value to the public Mm -hmm. you know whether the public ever sits in on our talk or not Mm -hmm. like are we asking questions that has have value in a wider public
3: and to be human that question really has something to do with um, you know, to being being human is is not just about scientifically being human as opposed to machines, but about what is, what is the meaning we make in our yeah. world and in our lives? And how do we, uh, you know, how do we interpret what we do and what's happening around us? And how do we want to be? What do we aspire to? You know, and I think that that's something that, we can find in the humanities and in these kinds of conversations, which are essential and vital to uh, not just a, a future a human race, but a maybe yeah. better, <laughs> you know, future human
1: race. We could probably talk about this for two solid hours. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm going to just move us. This is a kind of quick question. I just want to think about how has our understanding of public humanities and also as understanding public humanities, the humanities changed in these two years that we've had this podcast. For me, it's definitely trying to understand what the public humanities can be in a much wider way, because coming into it, it's like, yeah, people who work at museums. And that's not that that is public humanities. (laughs) It's really important public humanities. But it's not only that. Mm -hmm. It's not just those people.
0: Yeah. No. Well, I, I like that, and sort of um, going off of what like Michelle had just said, I I think that it, it also raises the question of of like what should the university be for. Mm. And like, I think it it gets to and and that that's something that's changed for me in the two years we've been doing this is I thought, yeah, public humanities, that's a very that's like it's a nominalist question. I'm going to like but I I think it's grown to like it's a very universal thing that is like what should even be the point of the university, because like, I mean, school in America is public school, at least is set up basically the same way it was when people were just going to go work into the factory in their town is like you know why do you listen to the teacher in high school well because usually he right we'll go back to that he stands up and you sit down and he's your foreman and you're being taught how to you know so like so you learn nothing so much as how to answer to authority and then like what's the university well because there's going to be people who are going to be educated to work for the aristocracy or whatever and that's kind of like the structure like the bones of that model we still have and and I think we're all in, like, in the question, in the conversation we've just had, we're all pushing against that, like, as much as we can. So I think that that's that for me has been like the biggest change is that like this this podcast and thinking this question has opened up for me like what the, the point of the university is.
2: Well, <laughs> I would, I'm thinking two things in response to that, Ryan. Sure. I mean, in a in a very kind of narrow sense, Michelle and I began this podcast asking questions about. The doctoral program in, mm-hmm. in you know it, it, c- looking at data to s- and, and and taking and recognizing that how few PhD students, particularly in English, but you know across the humanities, actually land in tenure track positions. Mm-hmm. Looking at what other work they that that those people then in fact are doing mm-hmm. right, and how doctoral programs might be restructured to to prepare students for that. So there's not this like. Gap, like mm-hmm. this, like kind of void, right? Like that. We're actually training students for uh, doctoral candidates for the positions that they may may very well find themselves in, mm-hmm. right? And so I don't, I I think that being that our, our podcast is called Careers in the Public Humanities, mm-hmm. like that that's been a thread all the way through, looking mm-hmm. at people doing different kinds of careers and trying to think about the relationship between doctoral training and and those careers. That's one way to say like, what does the university right. do? Why, right? the Why does the yeah, university yeah, exist? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and what what you know what what do we want it to do? Mm-hmm. You know, how how can it align with the vision of public humanities that we have? But the other part of your question, which is the more interesting one, right, which is <laughs> to say like, you know, how can through our scholarship, but in also through our teaching, through documents like a syllabus, right, mm-hmm. do we kind of begin to maybe disrupt the the kind of human person and human relations mm-hmm. that our very capitalist
0: sure. yeah, oriented
2: yeah. you know um, educational system has produced mm-hmm. right so I I do work in the 19th century and that whole common school movement right mm-hmm. that we that has produced the education system we have today with all of its inequalities mm-hmm. right um, and there's this is a very complicated thing that extends the scope of, of our conversation here but the university but also education you know mm-hmm. Kind of the whole kitten poodle K twelve you know primary secondary advanced mm-hmm. academic education is, um, has a role in in just continuing that or in disrupting that.
0: Right,
3: right. I I guess I just would add that I feel like the attack on the humanities has continued, and um, maybe mm-hmm. gotten a little worse in the last couple of years. And so I think, you know, I mean, I don't know if you saw the article about there's a college that's thinking about getting rid of all of their, (laughs) I'll look up what what it was, but, um, you know, it's just kind of a little bit alarming when you know how important this kind of work is, not for just us as faculty, but for the students themselves and how much they get out of these kinds of classes and you know if I see one more study about the return on investment (laughs) of college like I just think I might puke because the the fact is that it's not just mm-hmm. how much money you make after you graduate. It's also you know how happy you are, how much of a, a, a committed citizen in the world are you, you know what what is your impact on society and how do you see yourself fitting into the your your local community mm-hmm. and your global community, and without having any kind of consciousness about how to do that and what experiences of different people are and to think through some of these difficult problems that we do in the humanities whether they be about intersectionality and gender and race and you know all of that I think that we're doing ourselves a big disservice if we just are training students to like you Mm -hmm. know push buttons or something I mean or you know I mean and, and or even just to like know how to how to program or how to run a business like those are all great skills but they're not the only things that a person needs to know yeah, to have yeah, the, a good the, life. The,
2: the, <laughs> the um, attack, I think that's the word you use, like the attack on the humanities that you're describing right there, because there's multiple attacks on the humanities. But that's an inside fight. I mean, that's coming from you know that's a consequence of decades of sort of neoliberal takeover, for mm-hmm. <laughs> like, no, no, to no. follow yeah, this metaphor, you know, of <laughs> of those kinds of values onto the university, and not just even that. I mean, a whole corporate structure that then decides mm-hmm. right that when thing when 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 two things right that when there are disciplines that don't maybe uh, can't, can't prove the kind of same entrepreneurial or, or like sure. same kind of yeah. you know economic return on investment there's a lack of interest then in those disciplines but also those are disciplines are more likely to disrupt right the the kind of capitalist ideology that's underlying. So it really doesn't think,
0: just continue.
4: Yeah. I think what's it's, already it, it, there, there is about yeah. a, mm-hmm.
2: a, a, a kind of value system and it's not new, but it's accelerating or it's certainly entrenching. Mm-hmm. So it's both sort of from without, but also very much from within.
0: Yeah. No, I, I, th- I think it's a great point to, to bring up. And I think that like the the attack on the humanities as as being useful, like already frames the question in a way that like. Um, it puts us on the back foot from answering if we literally try to answer it. Yeah. And the way that we yes. have to, and the way that we have to answer it is have to, we have to reframe the question, which is that to attack in that way is a, a limit on imagination. And even if you wanted to, it, even if like I think Michelle, you kind of said this. It's like so. I'm pretty sure that uh, there, it's I'm very likely a, um, a school in in, uh, in rural uh, Wisconsin that got rid of a college that got rid of um, all humanities.
4: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah.
3: Yeah, I'm looking at that now. Yeah, that and does seem to be the,
0: it. there's there's some there's other like attendant issues with, with this, which is that like if people from that community want to go there and they want to get like a more technical degree. And so it's like, okay, so wait a minute. Let's just play this out for a second. If you had the, the accident of being born in a rural place and, the, uh, and also you were poor, and then you want to try to elevate yourself and your circumstances to go to college – Uh, And your only your option in this rural place that you've grown up is to go and get a technical degree to do something for someone else. And that's the only way that you can get money. It's like we're just deciding that there is a class of people who do not get to have a life of the mind where they do not get to think about things. And they don't get to like like imagine something other than the most relentlessly practical. And that's heartbreaking.
1: Well, but it is heartbreaking. But that's also where the public humanities can, like, pick up.
0: Yeah. And yeah. part
1: of the reason that it needs to not just be about the university because yeah. there are always going to be people who the university is not accessible to or the university underserves.
0: Sure, yeah, no, and that's and that goes back to, I mean, I think this is such a great conversation because that goes back to what we mean by public and how to, you know, like, it should be, I think as you're saying, like, this should be like a public universal, which is exactly, it's it's aimed at the the, the underserved, those who, who do not – have this chance, like, like, and I understand, like, then you you come in with like, oh, budgets, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and then this is the consequences, as Rachel's just been laying out of just like decades of like the like a neoliberal and like like capitalist figuring of what the university is, and that's why this university is in trouble. And how do you fix it? Go in the like, like, I think we were all saying, like, go go in the other direction. You you know, like, how do you add value to the community? Go in the complete other way.
3: It is a it is a problem because I think that universities are run like businesses to a large yeah. extent at this point. And so, you know, they're thinking about their own return on investment. And the reason why they're closing some of these departments down are literally because they don't feel like they have a future. They don't have enough majors. Mm -hmm. They don't have enough people who are interested. But the reason for that is a perception, or I would say a misperception by the society at large of what the value is of going into a a Mm -hmm. major in the humanities versus a, a more scientific or engineering major. And I think that... When you look at, you know, our future, where the robots take over a good portion of our jobs, and that is going to happen at some point, you know, the ones that always come out as the ones that, that humans have the most hope for are the ones that require the most, uh, you know, Detailed critical thinking and nuanced kind of he, truly human interactions or ideas, or so I think that maybe 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 it'll turn around at some point. <laughs> People will realize that well, it turns out that all these mathematical calculations can just be made by a machine, but these types of more complicated analyses has to be made by a human, or maybe the robots will just do everything and then <laughs> we'll, we'll the... be obsolete. <laughs> not just the just not general, just the humanities, yeah. well, but
0: humans. Yeah, the main, yeah. There's a well. There's a creative thing that that you're getting at, and there's also, and I mean, even to again to to delve into the more practical uh, part of this uh, of this attack. Like, there, I I don't know how long ago it was that there was a um a like a a global jobs report asking CEOs what they look for and new and it what they said is like well, right. we need someone who can write well and speak well and can do research and can. can think across like a variety of different global contexts and You don't need a business degree to do that. Any degree in the humanities teaches you those things. And it's like, okay, if you want like, how does the university combat the narrative if that's like the underlying question here? I don't know, I'm always wary of like giving into the argument like a little bit because I think you you cut yourself at the legs. But I mean, I do think there's a way of a a university or an English department saying not major in English because you'll read these things or do this, but like you will acquire these skills. And these skills are very like they're very important. And again, like I, I, I think that that's. But it's st- yeah. yeah, you're
2: still you're still saying like the the, that the that the kind of that useful like yeah. what yeah, is yeah, exactly. useful, right? Right. So the useful right? useful right. metrics, right. and I think yeah. that. Like I mean, look. I mean, there's like we, college ought to be useful, mm-hmm. right? It also it should help you move up in like the yeah, economic, yeah. you know, ladder. You should you should expect that it's gonna uh, give you uh, certain career opportunities, and and we know research shows that it does, mm-hmm. right? That mm-hmm. like going to college is is.
0: Even still, that's yes, why all yes. these. That's why all these rich people paid for their kids to, yeah. Like, to steal. yeah, like, and even just if, exactly. <laughs>
3: that's how yeah. important it is. No, <laughs> I actually don't think that's why. No, I think of course, they just but that, out but it,
0: but no, you're right. I mean, like <laughs> that's a total side conversation, but because that this is definitely that's definitely a thing. Uh, it's like the difference between wealth and status, mm-hmm. right? You know, you, you have to acquire status, mm-hmm. you, you know, where you like you can obtain wealth. But like but even still, like if there was no value to, to to college, like or especially like humanities or whatever, then like they wouldn't have spent millions of dollars to steal their kids. Right. Into but it. it's not. Yeah. It's,
2: I mean, even just to get away from the, the, the college, you know, more elite college and university. I mean, more than half the undergraduates in this country, more than half attend community colleges. Yeah. And they I, I'm not going to throw out correct numbers here but I mean the the, the statistics are very clear that a, just an associate street degree alone right yeah. that, that you move forward and, and and you see lots of more wealth accumulation so mm-hmm. over time so I um I mean there's a tremendous ben- like economic benefits to going to college and there's yeah. benefits to all of these majors but at the same time, we can acknowledge the importance of usefulness mm. in those contexts. Yeah. And then get back to what Michelle was saying, also, right? That there's um, there are fundamental questions that we need to be asking mm. for survival, for for our ability to thrive. I mean, the, the idea of, of what is human is is again not fixed, and we mm. know it's going to change. It's it's mm. going to change rapidly because of our technology. And we have to be asking these questions, not just at at elite schools, we Mm -hmm. have to be asking them at community colleges. And we do, we do ask them, right? Mm -hmm. We ask them in in robust humanities (laughs) departments. And so I I think that's a different kind of usefulness.
0: Mm. No, agreed, I think that's a great great way of putting it.
2: So
1: as we were talking about this, one of the things that came up was why this podcast originally started and thinking about graduate education and, and should we only be training for the tenure track? And funny enough, everyone who is in this roundtable right now who has graduated with their PhD or will do so very shortly has achieved a tenure track position, which, first of all, is kind of rare to have three people to have all gone and done that um, without huge gaps between graduation and getting that job. So first of all, congratulations to the three of you. Uh, Michelle, I'm looking at your picture. You can't see me.
0: But you're you're being thanked though, like in in <laughs> the eyes.
1: Um. So, yeah. <laughs> so I like, yeah yeah yeah. I want to think a little bit about how this how this changes the conversation in this room. So like, how do you engage with the public humanities within the tenure track? How does the work at the university potentially engage broader communities, or do you have to go outside of your normal job duties to do that? And then how does it? How does public humanities and work in the public humanities affect a job search?
0: I can I can start. For me, so I don't I I don't literally know because as I said, I have new faculty orientation next week. But when I was on my interview, when I was meeting with the dean and the president of uh, Pomona College, they both have backgrounds. It like Gabby, if you're listening, who the president of Pomona College is a civil rights hero. Like she was uh, at NYU and she set up a prison to university like like pipeline like program like also like getting people to uh prisoners like released to go to college and get a degree and she's doing like a similar thing at pomona it's just like wonderful and that's a thing i think they call it like an inside out program where students like undergraduate can actually actually meet with prisoners who are ta- who you know who the incarcerated i should say take classes with them and you know whatever and and, and that's so that's a very it's a very public facing uh, university.
2: Well, I mean, I as far as the work I'm doing now, I have the great, great fortune of teaching at LaGuardia Community College in Queens, New York, which is the most diverse yes. neighborhood or yeah. region or I'm just going to say on planet Earth. I think that's true. <laughs> and so it's really just incredible to be there. And um, it I mean, and to some degree, all I think all the teaching that the teaching is just a humanist endeavor. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's like we all kind of feel like we're doing you know, important work in the classroom and work that, that is, pu- I mean, public facing. I mean, it just, it just takes on a different, a different sort of quality there. Mm-hmm. And I teach, I have been teaching largely composition classes. And um, we've actually been working on the is- thinking through issues of education equity. That's been a, a major theme of the course. And so all of these, all of these topics, you know, pertain to the conversations we're having here. But I just think I'm starting to think through. So this is like a very nascent idea, and I don't know that I speak about it coherently, but I've been starting to, over the course of the year, it, teaching these composition classes, beginning to think about the connection between that academic work mm-hmm. of of composing, like essays of, uh, like, that kind of academic project that is, and and the act of revision, and then kind of the broader work of, like, of human growth right like like as you're working together and revising like this 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 material piece of you know this material artifact it does Mm -hmm. seem like there's all that 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 it's more than just a metaphor Mm -hmm. right for like what's also happening as a class or as we're developing a community Mm -hmm. or as we're or as we're like growing Intellectually, that it it it's more than just a metaphor, but somehow that 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 the two have similar problems, or, mm-hmm. or like in similar, I feel more than I have at before that that. It's hard to that that my certainly in around teaching mm-hmm. that the act that the that my job and, and doing the duties of my job is at, at the same time doing anything I could have ever imagined as mm-hmm. sort of public humanities work.
3: Mm. Oh, so I'm trying to think of what I can add here, but I think that for for me. I'm coming at it from a couple different angles in terms of how I'm tying the public humanities or whatever we want to call it into the work that I do. I mean, in some cases, it's tied directly into classes that I teach. For example, I teach uh, multimedia storytelling where students are learning how to make podcasts and videos etc and I think that it's not just they're learning how to turn things Mm -hmm. on and (laughs) press record right they're learning storytelling they're learning how to create Mm -hmm. narrative and and meaning and the why's behind it not just the how's and I also teach classes like sexual consent and violence in film, and a class like that, it's a writing class, so yes, it's very practical in some senses, and it's a film analysis class, so it's it's very humanities-like in that sense. But at the same time, it's also personal, and almost everyone in these types of classes knows someone with some experience of uh, sexual assault or trauma, a friend or family member, or, or maybe even them themselves. And so it becomes an important class on a personal level as well. And then, you know, outside of teaching, I also, like I said, I feel very fortunate at Bridgewater State University that the work that I do as a practitioner, as a filmmaker and an entrepreneur all counts towards what I'm, you know, working towards tenure. Um, And I think that's one of the reasons why it is a really good fit for me, because I'm continuing to make films and and screen them. I'm working on a book right now, which is for a more mainstream audience. It it would have to be published through a, a sort of, you know. A wide, a wider press as opposed to an academic press, which means I need to get an agent and and pursue that and and then obviously when I did the TED talk, that was kind of a, a, a point in time where I had to think about what I wanted to say for an audience that, you know, how what was the change that I wanted to make? What was the intervention, as we say in academia, that I wanted to make? Thinking a little bit more into into this and less about the jobs, but how has
1: writing a dissertation and becoming this expert in this very, very small part of knowledge that the three of you have been engaging it, well, Rachel and Michelle have completely finished. Ryan is almost finished. Almost done. (laughs) Almost done. How has that affected the work that you want to do with the public and and the work that you've very explicitly done in the public humanities? And then also just the conception of being a public intellectual. You
2: know, Katherine, I've just been thinking recently about that, uh, something like that, which is, um, I think that it's come to my awareness, you know, recently that I just I don't think about things like most people I know, hmm. and that wasn't always true, hmm. right? It wasn't. There's nothing like, believe me, nothing you know special about me in any kind of way. So like I, there, I never stood out. I didn't. I wasn't in the gifted and talented program. There's like, <laughs> like I'm not a rock star, but <laughs> something changed, and I can. Uh, and if I try to think about when it happened, it was the process of writing that dissertation. Mm-hmm. And it was the it was the couple of years of doing a whole a different kind of thinking. And that just made me an intellectual. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I can't like point to the moment, but like I was doing good in school, you know, like <laughs> and putting this in quotes all the way through multiple graduate programs. That have several graduate degrees and I was I was I just did school well you know Mm -hmm. like I knew how to do school well which is very different than being an intellectual and so I think you know when I was doing that dissertation it felt really narrow it felt like this thing like this like deep knowledge that would like not really apply to uh, you know that would that would possibly produce an academic book that would possibly land me a job but Mm -hmm. that you know wasn't wasn't really applicable broadly and what i've discovered and said is it has completely changed me and we know we know like this is like actually there's a neuroscience explanation for this yeah, right like sure. but yeah. like i'm like literally a different person mm-hmm. and for that level of of deep inquiry and like cross you know like and and i guess
0: one of it. the things yeah, that i think great. you're saying
2: <laughs> is that basically one cannot be mm-hmm. truly be an intellectual
1: and therefore a public intellectual without that process of trying to really have that extremely deep knowledge about a really Yeah, so I topic. guess that's
2: it. When we used to begin the podcast, we would ask like we would we would ask people like how do you use your dissertation? Or mm. like how does your dissertation apply? And like when I was asking that question, I wasn't imagining myself a year out of my dissertation. Like I I feel like my dissertation itself, like the five to, like I don't know how I use that. I don't know if I'll ever use <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah. But I came out of seven years of doctoral training, a different person. Mm -hmm. And I use it in every single way. You know, I just, I, I, it like, this is like, I I can't even, I I can't even like, I'm just an entirely different person. And I think now that that, that's a different question. That's a, I didn't understand that as I was asking Mm. the question.
0: I think that's a great answer.
3: I think it, it. It. Yeah, I absolutely would echo a lot of what you're saying. And I, for me personally, because I'm also making films, and and writing, I I would say that it changed how I saw the work that I was viewing, and then how I wanted to interact with that work as. A scholar, but also how I wanted to interact with work as an actual practitioner making mm-hmm. films. And so I, I think that I never could have had the kind of depth in thinking of what it is I'm making and why and, um, and really thinking all of that through without having spent all that time watching so much other work and reading so much other work and really thinking about it on a very specific level. And I'm so appreciative of it. I think in some ways at first, I have to say, when I was sort of early on in the PhD process and I was taking you know, introductory theory classes and I started feeling really overwhelmed, the filmmaker in me started feeling really overwhelmed because I started feeling like, how will I ever make something without knowing that it has all these different kinds of impacts and it's saying all these things and making all these yeah. meanings? It's like too overwhelming. Forget it. Just say nothing. And then at a certain point, I, I was able to kind of turn that corner and it changed how I would make something and what I wanted to say with that thing and what the purpose was. So, you know, ultimately it was an enriching experience for me and hopefully for anyone who, you know, engages with the work that I do.
0: To to echo both statements uh, uh, by uh, Michelle and Rachel, which I thought were lovely, uh, that my again the thinking through i i just in your actually rachel what you were saying i i I was reminded that i'm sure a lot a lot of people have seen and probably in this room the like the very famous david foster wallace commencement speech at Kenyon college this is water where he he goes through that like a university education he what he says it it doesn't teach you how to think you already know how to think but what it does is it shows you what to think about and how to think about it And that is is like it's like another level. I think I always think that's really, really nice. But so for for me, where I think that's come up is uh, and I'm not going to name it because the point is this is not self promotion. But with my the podcast that I do uh, with a friend of mine from University of Vermont, um, I get like an email or two a week from a listener who's not part of the university who stumbled on our podcast looking for some sort of like, I don't know. Uh, leftist philosophical theoretical thing, and I have no idea that they would like that there is even an audience for this, but there is, and I like I like it's as humbling and it's stunning, and it it like it it helps to show in in a, a very tangible way that like the like again the life of thought matters, and that people they actually what what does the, the what does the humanities do is like it like maybe like Foster wall said like it shows you what to think about and how to think about it, and that there really is like a like a zest and like a yearning for that like uh, amongst uncountable numbers of people and and that's I think the dissertation showing me what to think about, and how to think about it, and, and changing like who I am, like it has in, uh, impacted the work that I'm doing, that's going out to like a wider audience, and and I think that um, it's enriching, it's as, as as enriching for me as it is for like somebody emailing me saying that they really like the podcast.
1: Should the public humanities be considered an alternative to traditional humanities? work specifically in academia? And furthermore, should it be considered an alternative to the tenure track job?
2: I
3: mean, for me, the answer is no, because I think that, you know, there would be just as much value in the things that I do if I were doing it in a more either nonprofit or corporate space. I think that I would still be doing a lot of the same things. It just would not be at a university. And so I think, especially for those of us who see ourselves as creating work that is very public-facing alongside doing things in the Academy. I think that it's it's a little strange to call it alternative. And, you know, one of the things that was sort of ironic to me when we started this podcast was the fact that I couldn't be on it. <laughs> Not that that matters. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, the, the it seemed funny because I had spent 20 years already as an entrepreneur and, uh, you know, as a filmmaker. And, but I wasn't the the the, the sort of uh, person that we were thinking of. We were thinking of someone who had made a choice to, or or whether it was by choice or by you know lack of choice, to go into a career that did not involve being on a in a tenure track job, and that always seemed kind of problematic to me in the sense that you know many of us who are in those kinds of jobs also see ourselves in this in the same category. Just like a lot of people who are not in tenure track jobs also see themselves as teachers and are teachers. And sometimes I guess I just really feel it's, its I mean, you know, a tenure track job is a great job, but there are a lot of great jobs. And the truth is that many of us could probably make more money and be just as happy <laughs> in other fields. Uh, and so I think that And and in effect, the same amount of change. So I I personally have never felt like that was the only option for me. And I think that was extremely liberating and it is liberating. Um, And I wish that more uh, PhDs could have that feeling, not just when they're in the PhD program and when they're going on the job market, which can be very demoralizing, but when they're in their tenure track jobs, if they get that, because to feel a desperation that you are not qualified to do anything else, first of all, is untrue and, and puts you in a position to, frankly, be exploited. Mm-hmm. And so I think that it would be wise for all PhD programs to treat their students in a way and train them in a way that makes them feel like they're they've got a future in a lot of different, with a lot of different paths.
2: Mm. On one hand, I would... You know, I'm, I'm inclined to also say no, like, all right, I'm inclined to say um, no, that, that public humanity should not be an alter. you know, mm-hmm. as Michelle said, for all of those reasons. Having said that, there's really important scholarship in the humanities that gets done. I'm thinking about Ryan's interview with Paul Erickson. Mm-hmm. That gets done out of, outside of the academy, mm-hmm. that re- that absolutely requires scholars, Mm -hmm. right, trained, you know, trained academics, but it's getting done outside of the academy. And for that reason, that kind of the scholarship that's produced there, uh, you know, it's just the roles of those scholars working outside of the academy Mm -hmm. and the roles of a faculty member within the academy. Right. Those are slightly different jobs. And I think that 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 I would I I would want to see both both sort of institutions you know uh, be able to thrive. And so in that sense, I do see a difference in all between a traditional tenure track academic job and public and, and a scholarly job in a, in a in something that's more publicly, more broadly funded, not particularly university mm-hmm. and helping graduates students understand those differences and like placing them as alternative to one another well, is interesting when i was
1: thinking of it i was thinking more more emphasis on the word alternative what does it mean for us to consider this an alternative to right. something else. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and it, it's right. always kind of right. devaluing it, yes. in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right.
3: yes. Right. right. that That's ultimately the problem with that term. I think you're right, is that, first of all, it makes it seem like I was saying that it's right. one right. or the other, yeah. right. which is not mm-hmm. true um, because they can be happening at the same time and people are piecing these together and it also makes it sound like too bad it didn't work <laughs> mm-hmm. out for you, which is not always true. Sometimes people make that choice. There are a lot of people who leave tenure-track yeah. jobs. I mean, it's it's not for mm-hmm. everyone, and it shouldn't be, and it doesn't have to be. Um, that said, I do think that we should be funding more tenure-track mm-hmm. jobs, and in the public education system in Massachusetts has been fortunate to sustain a contract that requires 85% of classes are taught by full-time wow. faculty. We need, to, we need more of that.
1: Does anyone have any closing thoughts?
3: Well, I have a question, which is um, how how do how do you all see the future of this podcast moving forward? I mean, who, yeah, what's what's next? I guess this kind of falls mostly on me right now
1: because Michael and I haven't had a chance to talk about this yet. But I'll I want to see what he thinks after I say this. So, <laughs> Ryan and I made the decision this year that it it wasn't going to be explicitly PhDs anymore because. Um, we we found some very interesting people who earlier on in their career discovered that the, they wanted to be working outside of academia and, and never got that Ph.D. or they got a terminal mm-hmm. degree in a different field. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So so there's that. That's going to be a bit of an expansion of of not necessarily mm. only looking at people who have Ph.D.s, which also I think is just reflective of the fact that the humanities doesn't have to only be a PhD, And it's also. Right. Uh, this is true. I mean, a
0: master's degree. Yeah. Th- this is something that I was told when I was at University of Vermont. I got my, my master's mm-hmm. there and the, uh, the DGS at the time, she, she said to brought everybody together and said, like, look, if you want to do Ph.D. study, this is what it is. This is the landscape of things, she said. But also an M.A. in a lot of ways can be a more flexible degree mm-hmm. than a Ph.D. is. Mm-hmm. It can make you overqualified and underexperienced for things if yeah. you if you do want to be outside of, of the university. So yeah, so yeah. I, I think it's uh the the putting more emphasis on like what what a master's degree can do. It's not just like this pointless stepping stone like that, that you really do know something, you really do have some knowledge. Well, I was really, thinking yeah. that
2: before when we were talking about the idea of alternative. I mean, maybe like part of this is like do we want to there's a couple of possibilities. Do we want to open PhD programs Wide and say there's you know we're, we're at, which is some of the thinking this podcast began with right mm-hmm. like what are what are what are ways we can restructure PhD programs to prepare uh, candidates for you know a broad array of public scholarship right yeah. that's one way. Um, but then the other idea is to say what if we we could also think of phd programs very very narrowly more mm-hmm. narrowly mm-hmm. even right to say this is a profession this is a pro- pro- we're professionalizing yeah, right yeah, for yeah. the tenure track like we're yeah. teaching you the the academy right and how you function in it as a, as a faculty member then that master's degree mm-hmm. right which is all is an advanced degree right. and, and and is much more than maybe perhaps a stepping stone master's degrees across the humanities become stepping stones for work outside of the academy right. yeah that's really right nice that's like Another way to think about yeah, well, and the other
1: thing that I'm I'm thinking about is um, even when we we're talking about you know is it an alternative? I was thinking well, part of the problem is that so many people come into PhD programs assuming that at the end of the PhD program they will become a professor, and so mm-hmm. they close themselves off to these possibilities before even officially matriculating. Mm-hmm. And when we talked to Paul, it was really enlightening to me because Paul was just like, nope, never wanted it. Yeah, yeah. knew it yeah, from yeah, the yeah. beginning, but he still went and did the PhD. So part of me also thinks maybe talking to people who don't already explicitly have PhDs is this, it op- opens up for people to say like, oh, hey, they're just like me and they're doing this thing that's really cool. Like, I still wanna get the PhD, but then, you know, I listen to Paul's episode or I listen to um Dr. James Golden and, mm-hmm. and think about other things that I could be doing because, you know, he has some of the same feelings that I have right now, even though I really wanna go and do this PhD. And I think that that could be exciting too because in moving away from it being an alternative, we have to, the going into the program has to be more than like, I want to be a professor.
2: Yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, I also think that the irony of it is that, you know, when I went into the PhD program, I wanted I wanted to do it because I wanted to learn. And, you know, I did want to pursue a tenure track job, which I did. But I also knew that if that didn't happen or if I decided that wasn't for me, that I had lots of other ways of earning a living and, and mm-hmm. finding fulfillment. So I never felt like that was the only path. It just was one sort of path in the you know, sort of the assortment of choices ahead. But the irony of it is I think that because I had such an array of skills, having been an entrepreneur and filmmaker, and you know, run online magazines and et cetera, it gave me such an advantage actually on the tenure track job market because I it was I was able to teach not just theoretical classes about film but also you know classes of actually making media and in the film arena i think one of the reasons why some programs kind of shy away like our program is an english program so you know the question is well why would you pursue this and then go into a a film department or communications department how do you make that leap and and one of the ways you make that leap is by being a practitioner because when you're actually making the media then you have that experience that's different than just thinking about it
4: I might speak to this. Wait, and and this is just thinking about Michelle's question where I I might specifically have something to think about because if we're thinking about specifically this podcast moving forward yeah. I think it's really mm-hmm. closely related to to what Rachel is saying uh, in terms of remembering that this stuff does get out there mm-hmm. right and it's mm-hmm. really easy I think to to wake up in the morning and and look at your news feed and see just the tumult of that day's, you know, excrement that, that is going that is Pretty happening. Good, yeah. <laughs> and it, it feels like this insurmountable wall of socioeconomic values that that uh, that we're up against and that and that we can't possibly overcome. And and yet it's easy to feel that way and, and overlook some of the successes mm-hmm. that are that are happening in and and that and that you can directly relate to the humanities mm-hmm. when you think about the kind of social effects that people who are trained in the humanities want to have it, it's all the same kind of things that young people and, and even and millennials are interested in mm-hmm. socially as well the problem is that they don't make that connection right they don't connect these things that I'm interested in socially connect directly to the work that I could work do at the university. work that people from yeah. the humanities sure. do, and so that's how the humanities gets devalued, not mm-hmm. only at mm-hmm. you know the uh, at the uh, university level, but also in. In the at the public level yeah, or what yeah, we're yeah. calling the public yeah. that's why I think efforts like this one are important mm. it mm-hmm. we it sort of re, we have been good at doing some of the public work what we haven't been good at doing is articulating that work to the public that mm-hmm. in fact a lot of the things that you are supportive of are things that you need to know are coming directly out of the humanities and so I you know, I hope that's what the future of this is, yeah. is that, um, mm-hmm. as, as uh, Rachel says, these things are getting out there. These ideas are being proliferated. Mm-hmm. It's not easy to see that in our day-to-day. We have to sort of step back and take a look and see that there is some success out there and that it can be directly tied to efforts like this, and that's why I'm uh, interested in being a part of it. That's great. Mm-hmm. That's great, Michael. That's yes. great.
1: I think that's a lovely place to end Let's our discussion it. today. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to, again, say thank you to everyone for being here. But also I want to, again, say congratulations to Rachel and Michelle and to Ryan. And we're going to miss you. like Michael and I will actually miss you. Um, <laughs> but our, I'm sure our <laughs> listeners will miss your voices going forward. Maybe we'll have another time to have something like this. But otherwise, we hope that you have... Success in all of your future endeavors.
0: Thank you.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to the Careers in Public Humanities. Join us for our next season starting fall 2019. Feel free to subscribe to our podcast at web.uri.edu slash nextgenphd or find us on iTunes. Look for Careers in Public Humanities. This podcast was founded by rachel Bassio and michelle meek and this episode has been produced by ryan angley and Catherine winters with help from michael landreth in conjunction with the university of rhode island english department introduction by ryan Engley and Catherine winters Catherine winters is our editor and mark setta is our sound designer